Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Season 7, Episode 5 of Bell to Bell without Bobby Blaze. Bobby and Melanie are off doing God knows what, and, um, you know, I'm not going to try to interrupt that. So, when I should have been researching this week's topic, instead I was watching the Dukes of Hazard uh, marathon, and I got to the season where the replacement Dukes came in, and I came up with an idea. What I needed were two replacement uh, Duke boys of my own. So joining us uh, joining us this week, Adam Price, Sean Sparks, get on in here. Hey, guys. How's it going? And that is Doing Adam. All right. How are you? Hello, Jeremy. And that is Sean. Hey, guys. What's going on? Doing all right. Right on. Yeah, okay. Not, not, fe- not, not feeling any pressure whatsoever being your first guest since Ron Fuller. Uh, yeah, I don't know why you would feel any pressure, you know, following one of the uh, most instrumental people from one of the most instrumental families in all of pro wrestling. I don't know why that would bother you, but, um, anyhow, guys, uh, we wanted to talk about Mid-South Wrestling this week, but since I'm from Central California and Bobby's not here, we, uh, we kind of lack expertise in this topic. So that is why we are bringing you in. Why don't each of you, uh, starting with Adam, give us kind of a quick rundown of your relationship to Mid-South Wrestling. Well, with Mid-South, uh, I got into it and watching uh, basically at the inception of Mid-South when it was taped at the Irish McNeil's Boys Club um, out of um, uh, Shreveport, Louisiana. And it aired on our local CBS affiliate every Saturday around 1231 o'clock. And uh, the show was electric. And what you saw on television was uh, just a microcosm of what you saw in live events. I was fortunate enough to attend some live events with Mid-South at a local high school gymnasium, uh, plus an event in Jackson one time, uh, Jackson, Mississippi. Um but pretty much I followed Mid-South from that time uh, until shortly after it became UWF. And after it became UWF, in my opinion, and it moved to being filmed in Tulsa, the whole feel of the promotion kind of changed. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I kind of, my interest started to dwindle some. All right. Sean, how about you? What was your uh, relationship there? Uh, basically, Mid-South Wrestling was my childhood. Uh I don't even remember ever not watching it, but at some point, uh, my two older brothers and I discovered it on television, and it just became a part of everything we did, just about. Um, watching it every week, it bounced around the TV a little bit. Uh, used to be on Saturday afternoons, and it went to Saturday nights, kind of after the 10 o'clock news, and then eventually, kind of toward the end of the run, it was on uh, Sunday afternoons, but... My two brothers and I were just watching it constantly, and just as we'll get into, everybody around us is watching it too, and it was just something else. I mean, it, it's more of a cultural phenomenon than a TV program at that point. Gotcha. Yeah, see, I didn't even discover it until it was already the UWF um, and you know syndicated across the country. <clears throat> but what I did like, well, obviously the Freebirds were there, so I was a huge fan of that. And one of the things I liked about it was more of a bruiser kind of promotion. Did that hold up during the time it was Mid-South, or what was the wrestling itself like? Actually, with, with Mid-South, when it first started, or first became 
part of my viewing. It was full of brawlers. I mean, you had big guys. You had a lot of, of you know, Ted DiBiase. Um, you had the grappler, uh, Lynn Denton. Mm-hmm. Um, you had Junkyard Dog. Uh, and Junkyard Dog, by far, was the biggest star Mid-South had. He was the biggest star in this area. He was beyond popular. Uh, everybody, even someone that knew very little about wrestling, they knew who the Junkyard Dog was. Um, so you did. You had a lot of brawlers. Ernie Glad, the Samoans, were in Mid-South at that time. The Iron Sheik was finishing up in the Mid-South. Um, Paul Ellering, most people only know him as a manager. Mm-hmm. Paul Ellering was built like a brick house. Uh, you know, phenomenal guy. He had a lot of injuries. Uh, you know, we had Bob Root. We had Paul Orton. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, Bob Orton Jr., Paul Orndorff. So we had a lot of brawlers. We had big guys. So when you saw matches, they were, you know, big guys. One-man game came in. You know, so we, we did. We had a lot of big guys. It transitioned a little later. Uh, once Dundee came in from Memphis and brought in the rock and roll, brought in Midnight's, Cornette, different ones. Then it began to transition a little bit. But initially, big guys, a lot of brawling. Yeah, and that was one of the things I enjoyed about what I saw in the UWF. You know, Gordy versus like uh, Steve Williams. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. that's just power on power, you know. Um well, you know, so if we're going to talk about this a little bit, let's get into the origins of what would become Mid-South and UWF. What was the original starting territory and who ran it? Well, you want me to take that one out? Yeah, oh, let's, let's give you that one, Sean. All right. Uh, it, Mid-South was born out of the Tulsa, Oklahoma, where it became an NWA territory. It actually all, it goes all the way back to 1924. Uh, with promoter Sam Avey, and in 1958, Leroy McGirt took it over. Now, Leroy is a pretty interesting character. Uh, he was kind of Danny Hodge before Danny Hodge, kind of a precursor. Uh, NCAA champion at Oklahoma A&M, which is now Oklahoma State, 1931, and after he graduates college, he goes pro working for Avey's territory. He wins the National Wrestling Association's junior heavyweight title in 1939, and that title ends up branching and splitting off. But McGurk holds some form of that title for the next 10 years plus. And at the end of 1949, he actually unified the association title with the National Wrestling Alliance title. Mm-hmm. But then, unfortunately, a couple of months after that, early 1950, he's involved in a car accident, which leaves him blind because he had already lost his eyesight in one eye in a childhood accident. He loses the eyesight in the other eye in this more recent accident after unifying the titles. Thus, he has to drop the title to our friend, the most decorated professional wrestler of all time, vacated, mm-hmm. at which point Avery brings him in as a partner in the promotion. And they work together for a while, but then McGirt takes it over on his own in 1958. And then later on, uh, Bill Watts, which I'm sure we'll go into more detail with him later, comes in as a partner. And they work together for some number of years, and eventually Watts peels off part of the McGurk territory, and it becomes Mid-South. So what was what was Watts' background? How did he get involved? 
Okay. Well, Watts, he was born in 1939, which coincidentally is the same year McGurk had won that junior heavyweight world title. Uh, wrestled and played football in high school. He was from a small town there in Oklahoma. He signed to play football at the University of Oklahoma. His time there, I guess tumultuous would be a good word to put it. Uh, he didn't mesh well with the coaches very well. He was dealing with a shaky marriage that was a result of him getting his girlfriend pregnant in high school. And he was kind of a hill raiser. He had a little bit of a rough childhood. His mom, from looking back at it now, they think she was manic depressive. So sometimes she was kind of helicopter mom. Other times she was just, you know, beating him up, for lack of a better word. And he just never knew what he was going to be dealing with with her. So he kind of became a hell raiser kind of growing up. He gets to college. He's still just constantly getting in trouble. So he's playing football at Oklahoma. His sophomore year, he's involved in a car accident where the car he's in hits a moving train because the crossing lights weren't working. He gets severely injured. He's in a coma for a while. He's off his feet for about six months. And then when he gets out, as he's trying to rehabilitate himself and get strong again, he runs into some old friends and they get into weightlifting. And so he starts getting into weightlifting and the nutrition and everything. And his weight shoots up like crazy. And at the time, Oklahoma wanted small and quick. And here's why it's bulking up. He's getting up over 300 pounds. And it just gets to the point where they tell him, you know, we just really don't have a place for you anymore and what we're trying to do. So he gets put off his football scholarship. But the wrestling coach at Oklahoma, you know, sees him all bulked up and knows that he was a really good high school wrestler. And the wrestling coach tries to get him to come in and work out some of the collegiate wrestlers for Oklahoma. And they were kind of in a transition of wrestling coaches at that time. And the one who was outgoing, who had invited Watts in to work out with him, wanted to put him back on a wrestling scholarship. But the incoming coach didn't want to do that. And so Watts kind of saw that wasn't going to pan out. So he ended up signing with the Houston Oilers to play pro football. And that doesn't last very long because one of the because the head coach cusses him out one day and Watts takes him outside and says, you better not talk to me like that again. And the coach smarts off to him and Watts punches him in the mouth and gets cut. As would happen. Yeah. 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 You know, they, yeah. they tend to not take a good view on that. So from there through Wahoo McDaniel, who was a Oklahoma football teammate, he gets involved in pro wrestling. And at first he tries out for McGurk. And does some workouts and tryouts with that, but he never really gets anywhere with it because McGurk's territory is more of a junior heavyweight, and they he just didn't have anybody big enough in the territory to work with. Mm-hmm. And so Watts ends up moving to Indianapolis again through some connections with Wahoo. And while he's in Indianapolis wrestling, he actually gets back into football for a little while. Um, he gets an offer from the Vikings, but the general manager there says, yeah, you can either play football for us or you can wrestle. And Watts chose, chooses to continue wrestling. So he goes from territory to territory for a while and then at some point crosses paths with Red Berry, who then gets him on with Toots Mott and Jitsing Man on the East Coast. And he goes there. He becomes Bruno Sammartino's tag partner. And then Watts turns on San Martino, and there's this huge feud, one of the bigger feuds in WWWF history, Watts and San Martino. And so he just becomes a huge star. 
Ends up later going to Roy Shire and work on the West Coast out in California, then mm-hmm. goes to Fern Gagne and the AWA for a while. And then in 1970, McGurk asked him to come back to Oklahoma because the territory's kind of fallen on hard times, and he wants them to come in as both a talent and a promoter. So 1970 is when they started working together. Trying to winnow this into some, some uh, pieces we can actually handle here. So <clears throat> as far as that territory goes... Uh, this it was centered in Oklahoma. Yes. Okay. How far did it reach out? What was kind of the the market territory here at its at its height? You know, okay. it, how far did in nineteen seventy when Watts comes back in, it is covering Oklahoma, Arkansas, Louisiana, parts of Mississippi, parts of Missouri, and the city of Wichita Falls, Texas. Okay, that's that's actually a pretty huge territory. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, uh, and there were no other, uh, promotions that he was struggling with or fighting with for the market at that point? Uh, no, not for a while. Um, because Louisiana was kind of a dead zone. It was mm-hmm. kind of on the fringes of all your other bigger territories. You know, it was a little too far from Texas. It was a little too far from Mobile. And I mean, it was kind of a dead zone for a while. And just whoever, kind of want it to work it would work it at that point and you know it was kind of a you, if you're here first you are the you have the rights to the territory and it would just change hands from time to time and mcgurk ended up getting it for the longest period of time there you know during that time period gotcha you know we kind of had that here in california it's like west of nevada wrestling never really took hold you know and so here you had two cities you had los angeles and san francisco and then to go up again, you wouldn't hit anything else. You hit Portland up in Oregon. And mm-hmm. they were kind of like separate islands up there. So I guess Louisiana is kind of like that in a way, except we're talking about a much larger piece of land, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So who would you guys say, and Adam, we'll go to you because you've been quiet for a bit now. Who were the biggest stars in that territory? Who were the who was the guy that you liked the most or the tag team that you kept tuning in for? What was What was your draw? Well, of course it was JYD. Mm-hmm. JYD was was the biggest star. Um, you know, if you look at it from a historical standpoint, uh, in this area at that time you had the New Orleans Jazz, you had the New Orleans Saints, and then other than collegiate sports, you had nothing else in this area. The biggest star the New Orleans Jazz had ever had was Pete Maravich. He went to school at LSU, local guy. The biggest star that the New Orleans Saints has had had to that time was Archie Manning. He went to the University of Mississippi, another local guy. So you introduce the junkyard dog into wrestling. He was the absolute biggest star that they had. And he crossed every line possible. You know, it was not a deal of, he was the best black athlete in Mid-South. It wasn't that. He was the best wrestler in Mid-South. Everybody liked him. It didn't matter if you were white, black, Mexican, whatever. You loved the Junkyard Dog. It didn't have a thing to do with him being a black athlete. But he was the premier athlete in Mid-South. And as far as tag team goes, my favorite tag team of all time in Mid-South was actually the Junkyard Dog and Mr. Olympia, which is Jerry Stubbs. 
they were fantastic in the ring. Jerry Stubbs was doing aerial moves at that time that you didn't see uh, anywhere but with him. You know, he was a high flyer, high energy, all over the place, great technical wrestler. He and Junkyard Dog were, were a phenomenal team, you know, and uh, led him to some great uh, feuds with them having the belts and them losing the belts and how they lost the belts. All right. So I, I'm going to throw this one to Sean. Uh, Sean, where did Junkyard Dog come from? Junkyard Dog started off, um, well, I mean, he played football in college in South Carolina. When he got into pro wrestling, he starts off in Tennessee. And there's Jerry Jarrett's told the story that, you know, when he broke it to him, that he was giving him his notice and they were done with him. Dog had no idea what that even meant. He's like, nah, I kind of like it here. I want to stay. And like, Jerry's like, no, you don't understand. You you have to leave. And because uh, I'll just I'll just stop booking you. I won't schedule you for any shows. So then from there, he goes up to uh, Canada, works in Stampede. And there he starts gaining some traction. He actually holds their title for a while. And Watts, at this point, he's broken off. He has taken Louisiana and Mississippi out of the McGirt territory. Um, they Watts, I, I would swear that I either read or heard him say in an interview that initially all he wanted to promote was the city of New Orleans. Mm -hmm. That's all he really mm -hmm. wanted from McGurk, but he had to take the whole state. Either because McGurk told him you, can, you have to take the whole state, or at the time, Louisiana actually had a law that there was only going to be one promotional license in the state. Right. And so anyway, so Watts has to take Louisiana. And McGurk also tells him, well, if you're going to take Louisiana, you're taking Mississippi, too, because at the time they were having a little bit of a beef with the Culkins, who are the Mississippi promoters. And they had promoted Mississippi with McGurk and Watts when they were partners. But then McGurk's territory starts focusing more on other areas and they're booking fewer shows in Mississippi, which is costing the Culkins money. So the Culkins break off. They make their own promotion. And there's an antitrust suit going on and everything. And so McGurk's like, if you're taking Louisiana, take Mississippi too, take that headache off my hands. So Watts now has his territory of Louisiana and Mississippi. And one of the first things he wants to do was find a charismatic baby face, preferably black, that he can push and become the kind of star that he knows that that person could become in New Orleans and, you know, the greater area. And so he ends up, Scouting, talking to people, and finds Sylvester Ritter, who's the junkyard dog, and brings him down and creates the junkyard dog. You know, it's kind of ironic when you talk about he found him. It actually credits Jake Roberts of finding him yes. and sending him down. And, you know, Jake uh, doesn't have many good things to say about Bill Watts, and Bill Watts doesn't have many good things to say about Jake. But Watts does give Jake the credit for that. Yes, all right. <clears throat> yeah, because I don't know if people from outside your area um, truly appreciate how big a star the Junkyard Dog was down there. Um, you know, as far as like actual popularity contests and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but he was kind of the Hulk Hogan before there was a Hulk Hogan, really. Um, I have personally mm -hmm. seen women and children weep meeting Junkyard Dog. 
Yeah, that's why. That's the type of emotion that he was able to bring in people. And people got behind him. Man, did they get behind him. That's the thing I read one time. uh, They were trying to break down his popularity, and it came down to like, if you watch wrestling, you realize what a badass he was. So there was no question about that. So, you know, like dudes wanted to be like him, white or black, didn't matter. Right. But mm-hmm. at the same time, your racist grandma found him non-threatening and wanted to give him a hug, too. So it was like, you know, all these very, like, specific things that no matter how how shitty a part of the market was for black people, like, he fit right in. And oh, people loved him. Yeah. People absolutely loved him. Yeah. And one of the things Watts purposely did in the booking of him is he would always have JYD getting screwed, getting messed over, and being put in these situations. And he made it a point to never send anybody else in to rescue and save him. Mm-hmm. It was always up to Junkyard Dog to get out of it himself. And so you'd see this guy constantly getting screwed over. Always had the odds against him, and he would find a way to come out on top and get justice. And I mean, you want to talk basic storytelling that will, you know, attract a wide range of people. I mean, it doesn't get a whole lot more basic than that. No, it really you know, doesn't. I mean, that's the same same reason people watch the first round in NCAA tournament. You know. Yeah, um, I don't know. Do you guys do you guys remember a movie called Billy Jack? Did you ever see that? Never saw it. No. Okay, never saw it. Uh, it. It was this husband and wife team um, made this series of movies. They they literally they wrote wrote directed cast catered the whole bit. Okay, and they you know they're 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 hard to watch now because they did not age well. Um, but years ago, before they passed away, I bought their screenwriting book. And there's a whole chapter in there just on let the universe shit on your hero, basically. You know, downtrodden, everybody's out to get them. And then then when they overcome that, it's just going to make them seem that much grander. It's going to make them seem that much more triumphant. And that's well, you what, know, mm-hmm. Go ahead. I was going to say, and that's what I'm hearing when you describe what was going on with Junkyard Dog. Well, you know, unless Sean remembers it differently than I do, I never remember the junkyard dog losing a legitimate match. He was right. always cheated. He was always double teamed. Uh, something was done, you know, whether it was the angle where they blinded him, whether it was throwing uh, powder in his eyes, whatever. They never beat him legitimately. And there was always the chase. With the with, with JYD, it was always the chase. He held... Uh, the Mid-South Tag Titles numerous times. He held the Louisiana State Championship. He held the North American State Champion. Uh, I'm sorry, the North American Heavyweight Championship. There was he held those, but he never held them for a very long period of time because they were always the chase. Right. Somebody had had did him dirty, so there was the chase, and it was always the buildup, you know, to to get you into the buildings. But to see him live, and I know that, that Bobby uh, got to see him quite a few times live, to see him live, especially at that time, was something special. To see him in a house show or uh, to see him at a Superdome show or, or wherever, it was special because of the way the people got with him. Hey, guys, this is Bobby. Hey, hey Bobby. Hey, Bobby. 
Man, um, sorry to interrupt. I've been listening the last couple of minutes, and uh, I really enjoyed what I've heard. Thank you guys for being on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having today. us. Please, yeah. thank you for having accept us. my most sincere apologies for being late. Oh, not at all. Internet problems, and that's that. But, uh, man, JYD, I came in at the right time. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think someone just mentioned I, I, I'd met him uh, several times. I got to tour Australia with him. Um, I was over for, I don't know, 20 22, 23 odd days. Um, just a really good guy too. Um, you know, away from the, away from the building and stuff. He was at that time, you know, just real laid back and just the, everyone loved him, you know, kind of thing. Um, just real quickly, I'll tell you a funny story. When I went to, when I got back from Australia, the, I had, I had tried out for Smoky Mountain Wrestling and my first loop I did, I went to uh, down in uh, Virginia and West Virginia. And as fate would have it, WCW was coming to Ashland, Kentucky to wrestle while I was on the road. And, um, of course, I would have down there and, you know, seen some of the guys or what have you had I not already been on the road. But the funny thing was that the YMCA is where my mom worked at. And um, <clears throat> some of the guys come in and uh, from that crew, well, here come JYD. And uh, my mom told me it's like when that following Monday, I guess, this happened on Saturday afternoon. And um, so he gets to the front desk and says that um, he had forgot his uh, ID out in the car, his wallet. And she let him turn around and get several steps away from the desk. And uh, she said, uh, that's all right, Sylvester. You can come in here. And he turned back around like real quick. And he goes, how do you know my name? <laughs> and she goes, I know you're Sylvester Ritter. And uh, he goes, how do you know that? And he, she's got this, she had this great smile. Uh, you know, of course, JYD did as well. And she goes, uh, well, um, my son happens to be Bobby Blaze. And I read the entire itinerary for uh, your tour of Australia with him. And, of course, he stood there and just put, put my mom over and stuff and made her feel good. And yeah. said he went in there and, you know, got a workout in. And then... After that, the following Friday, I was doing a Friday-Saturday loop for Bobby Fulton shows over in Ohio, and and JYD was on, on that loop with them. And so I got to town. Um, of course, I hadn't seen him for probably about a month at that point, but we had been over in Australia for almost a month together. And, uh, of course, I gave him up, shook his hand, gave a big hug and stuff. And he said, man, and before I could even tell him, he goes, I met your mom last week. And I said, that's what I was going to ask you. And so it's just really cool. Um, yeah. So I won't interrupt any more of the history of what's going on here with the, the Mid-South and the podcast. Again, thank you guys for coming on. But I just want to oh, share that JYD you, story with you guys. Um, I know around here he was uh, – anytime he came to this area, and it was, he was really, really over too, you know. So – um, just a little side note there that y'all yeah, can spend some time with him, and that's really cool. Um, but thank you guys for being on. Go ahead and continue your conversation, Jeremy. It sounds like you got it going on um, really good. Uh, so just don't let me interrupt. Uh, and if you need me, just holler. I'm, well, I'm enjoying you, what I heard yeah, so far. You know, Bobby, it's your show, so just hang tight and feel free <laughs> to fire off questions. Uh, but you know what? I did want to ask one thing. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about the junkyard dog there. And as somebody who wasn't really hip to the territory, why don't you guys tell me about Ted DiBiase? Sparks, you start, and I'll, I'll, I'll okay. follow up. All right. Well, Ted DiBiase uh, started off in the territory when it was still a joint Watts-McGurk venture. Uh, he was actually, I believe, the 1977 NWA Rookie of the Year. 
uh, which I assume was just in the territory and not nationwide, but I mean, who knows? But um, so, and he, of course, he was the son of Iron Mike DiBiase, who actually died in the ring, mm-hmm. I believe, in Oklahoma. Uh, it was either Oklahoma or Arkansas, it was one of those, one of the McGirt Territory uh, states. But he dies in the ring, so here's his son coming up in the wrestling business, and he's doing well for himself. And, you know, he was just – he was huge baby face. I mean, everybody loved him because, I mean, he was the second generation. He was working face, so he was always doing everything clean. He was a hell of a race wrestler. I mean, just real good at what he did. And what really just blew everything up was when he turned on Junkyard Dog. Yeah. Adam, go ahead and uh, throw your yeah, two with, cents in there. With DiBiase, DiBiase was extremely, uh, you know, when you saw him in interviews, he was well-dressed, uh, well-versed. Uh, they built up the storyline leading to that, and this is actually a shoot. He was, uh, JYD was his best man uh, when DiBiase was married. So their friendship was extremely close. And when he turned, DiBiase went from the number two baby face behind JYD to the number one heel in a matter of seconds. It was an amazing turn. And, you know, people, a lot of people know DiBiase as the million dollar man. Uh, DiBiase in my world will always be the master of the figure four leg lock because that's how he was built in Mid-South. And, you know, he came up, he had the loaded glove and became part of the Rat Pack with Akbar and Matt Bourne and uh, Jim Duggan before he uh, turned babyface. DiBiase was was amazing. He was amazing to watch in the ring. He was a great technical wrestler. Um, he did everything well in the ring. But once he became a bad guy, you know, loaded glove. And that's what he was known for. Now, and, mm. and the thing that really would irk you it just make you hate him so much is given his history you knew he was good enough to win without cheating right but he did it anyway (laughs) well harley harley race was kind of like that harley race could beat anybody in the ring he just cheated because he liked to right yeah he didn't need to do it to win um so a lot of us who are from outside that territory you know obviously we know ted dibiase as the million dollar man uh, now I caught him originally in the UWF. Of course, there he played a character named Ted Debussy. Uh, mm. <laughs> uh, but another guy that comes to mind when I think of that area is Hacksaw Jim Duggan. And I know recently or sometime in the last like six to eight months, I misquoted where Duggan had come from. So somebody give me the rundown on his career. Either well, actually, one of you. <laughs> actually, from what I understand, uh, Fritz von Erich got Duggan into the business, uh, both of them being former SMU guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, he kind of started out there. Uh, I think he got his first break in Florida. Uh, he was living and working in, in the Pensacola area, and he was working there just as a uh, big Jim Duggan. Uh, I think from there he went to um, Amarillo maybe. Uh, was working some with, um, from what I understand, Brody and, and, and different ones. And then he went to Hawaii, and he worked in Hawaii as a mask guy. 
he worked as a convict. And then when he came back, uh, ended up being back in Texas as uh, Big Jim Duggan, or as, I'm sorry, that's where Hacksaw was created. He became Hacksaw there. And then he came to Mid-South, which would probably be where he was known the best before he went to WWF uh, way late into Uf, uh, UWF. Now, he was a little bit less buffoonish before jumping to the WWF and all that. Oh, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, not a little, a whole lot. <laughs> Yeah, that's that was always one of the things that kind of irritated me once he jumped. I mean, I get, you know, it might be fun to play that character, but as a fan of his and then watching that kind of fall apart, mm-hmm. you're just like, ugh, shit, yeah. okay, uh, yeah. Yeah, um, when, he first, when he first came in, he was coming off uh, a wild man Duggan gimmick. Right. And if you watch his, when they, they, they actually did a whole little introduction promo. When he came in the mid south, and he's still wearing like the Captain Caveman vest, mm-hmm. but that didn't last very long. Uh, okay. he, of course, he was aligned with DVIC, uh, Matt Bourne, and Akbar. Mm-hmm. And of course, he starts his deal with I don't like Akbar. He's not American. He's not American. And, uh, you know, DBIC is trying to control him, you know, so to speak. And, oh, I've got this. I've got this. And then eventually Duggan made a turn. And, you know, then for a long time, he was the number two baby face behind JYD until JYD left to go to New York. Yeah. Uh, so what was what was Mid-South's relationship to or with the NWA? Uh, Mid-South was not. In the NWA, okay. uh, they were never a uh, member. That was one of the first things Watts did when he broke off. He's like, I'm not going to bother paying dues and all that. Uh, never got an explanation on that. Never seen one anywhere. Uh, I know Watts, when he was wrestling, kind of had an issue with how the NWA handled the world title. So I don't know if he was just holding a grudge with that. But he was never actually a member. But at the same time, his territory was legitimately his territory. So the NWA never gave him any problems. They had a good relationship. The NWA champion would come in from time to time. But And it may have even been a situation where just like with the New York territory, they just let him be so nobody could claim an antitrust violation on him. Yeah, I always, I always found that to be an interesting idea because they – they had these tight relationships back then with these unaffiliated promoters. Um, you know, the NWA with New York and obviously now mid South at that point. And I think you were the first person who brought it up to me that that was like a working theory behind it was that way. It's not like a complete monopoly. And I thought that was interesting. I've always, I've wondered since then if that was really the case, I, you know, does that, would anybody even know, you know, Um, all right, so we got that. Uh, then the other thing I want to bring up, so the North American title, was their primary title there? Yes. yes. Okay, so did they have a secondary title? Uh, it started out, they had a Mississippi heavyweight champion, a Louisiana uh, state champion. They ended up doing away with those. Of course, they had a tag team championship as well. Then they added in a TV title. Uh, which started out looks like a Olympic gold medal, mm-hmm. um, and then uh, 
of course, once they developed into UWF, the North American title went away, became the UWF heavyweight champion, then UWF tag team champion, and you still had the TV champion. And I don't remember if there was any others. Now that was it. I think it was just the three. And I um, did they, when they became the UWF, did they upcycle any of those titles or did they disassociate all the original titles and create new ones for the UWF? Well, by that time, the Mississippi and Louisiana state championships were done away with. Uh, they added in the TV uh, title and basically the there, there was really no uptick of anything else. Yeah, they just kind of hit the reset button on it and yeah. kind of retired the other titles and then had tournaments and such for the UWF titles. Okay. Um, hey, guys, how, how strong – I have one question about uh, one of the other guys there. We may back up on him in a second. But uh, how strong was the TV there um, coverage-wise? Huh. I imagine it's pretty – just – covered everything right just, uh, yeah basically if there was a town in those two states that had a tv station mid-south wrestling was on it yeah uh, i thought yeah. i've heard corny talking about that on his few weeks back maybe um but i wasn't sure like so you're you're talking over all of oklahoma um where you talk about louisiana just in that whole uh, mississippi everywhere yeah. out through there yeah, I mean, it it kind of started off when Watts initially broke away. You know, he would have TV in your larger cities, you know, your Baton Rouge, your New Orleans, your Jackson, uh, your Shreveport. And then as the territory got hotter and doing more business, they started picking up more cities. And by the time Watts reabsorbed the western half of the, territory, the original territory, uh, you know, the syndication had just blown up. And like I said, yeah. I mean, at that point, if, if there was a TV station in the territory, it was Eric Mid-South Wrestling. Yeah. Greenwood, Mississippi, for example, probably hard to find on a map, but Greenwood, <laughs> Mississippi, they had a 60 share. With yeah, I, I saw your man. note there. Uh, I was yeah. ready to ask you about that. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You compared it to what uh, the Beatles and the Ed Sullivan. Yeah, the the uh, Mid South Wrestling right? was carrying a sixty share in multiple markets, and that is sixty percent of the TVs that are on are watching that show, <laughs> and that is equal to the Beatles' first appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show nationally. Wow, you know, and you've got a you've got a and town when, that's that's south of Columbia, Mississippi, called Bogalusa, Louisiana. In 1985, the population there was roughly around 10,000. Uh, Mid-South had a uh, house show on their football field. They had over 4,000 people there. You know, um, amazing turnout for when they had house shows. Yeah. Yeah, and that's how you end up with that kind of TV coverage. You know, when you've got that many eyeballs on your product, it's a lot easier to go up to a TV station and say, hey, you know, we want some time to put our show on. Like, yeah, sure. Mid-South was, was kind of, for me, ahead of its time in that not every angle started on television. There were a lot of angles that started in house shows or at the Superdome. You know, so what you got to see on TV was excellent TV. But what you saw on the house shows, too, you know, meant something. Everything yeah. itself mm -hmm. meant something. 
Also, in your notes here, I see uh, that Krause is Huma. I hear Cornette speak about that down way far down there. Homa. Okay. I think someone's got a couple stories here um, about uh, something Ricky Morton, Bobby Eaton told you um, at a WrestleCon. Uh, Yeah. Is this a good time to ask? Yeah. Yeah. That was me. Homa, Homa, Louisiana. Is that correct? Yeah, the home, Homa is west of New Orleans, and you're not going to Homa unless you're going to Homa. You know, nobody's passed through <laughs> Homa going from one place to another. And the crowds were just insane. I mean, it's kind of like the old Jeff Foxworthy line, you know, Cajuns are rednecks with hot sauce. <laughs> and Homa is about as deep Cajun as you can get and the crowds were just insane and wild and rioting constantly and at the last WrestleCon that was in New Orleans I was talking to Ricky Morton for a little bit I mean two I mean Ricky Morton I love him all you gotta do is say hi to him and ask him one question he'll talk to you for 20 minutes oh yeah but he Great said guy. the first time Steve Williams wrestled in Homa he was in the ring with him, and I, he didn't mention if it was a tag match or a singles match, but it's Ricky Morton and Steve Williams are in the ring in home. It's Steve Williams' first trip there, and Ricky says, be careful, watch your back, let's get this done and get out of here. These people are nuts, and Steve Williams blows him off. He's like, I ain't worried about these people. Screw them, <laughs> and Ricky's like, okay. And so they wrestle in their match, and they get a few minutes into it, and people are getting riled up, and they're trying to—they're kind of starting to converge on the ring. And Steve Williams is looking at Morton, is like, "Yeah, okay, let's get this thing done. Let's take it home, get out of here." And Morton's like, "Ah, oh, no, nah, man, you're not worried about these people. Screw them. Let's keep going." <laughs> and so Morton refuses to end the match, and they go for another five, ten minutes just to uh, <laughs> screw with Steve Williams. Oh God. And so a little while after that, I go over and I'm talking to um, Bobby Fulton. And I was like, yeah, you know, Ricky was just telling me about Homa. And Bobby looks, his eyes get wide. He's like, (laughs) man, one time we were leaving that place and the people in the parking lot were on both sides of our car, rocking it back and forth so hard the rearview mirror fell off. (laughs) And he goes, and we were the good guys. (laughs) <laughs> oh man, that's good stuff. That's good stuff. I mean, in all the, I mean, there's just so many stories with that. Um, you know, Lake Charles, Louisiana, when the Freebirds were wrestling in Lake Charles, they would not get escorted by the police. They would actually get driven to the arena in the police car. Yeah, I had the that free, in my the notes. Free, the Freebirds would go to the police station, and the police would drive them to the arena. <laughs> <laughs> now, at one time, an Arkansas State Police officer gave Jim Cornette his bulletproof vest saying, you need this more than I do. <laughs> you know, that is one of the things, I think, right there, why wrestling doesn't or can't or won't ever feel the same again. You know, there used to be a time where the heel took his life in his own hands getting out by the crowd. You know, all they got cut basically from asshole to throat one time with a pair of scissors um, Paul Orndorff took a brick to the face from a little old lady, you know, uh, mm-hmm. guys tried to shoot, well, shit, who was it? That had, somebody had a gun pulled on him and almost got shot one time, like right, right in the show. Oh, that was, uh, Michael Hayes in New Orleans. That was it. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, yeah, it was during the JY Junkyard Dog blinded angle, and you know Hayes is coming up to Dog, and some guy jumps out of the crowd with a pistol, points it at Hayes, and says, "I got you, Dog. Don't worry about it." <laughs> yeah. So. And as other people tell the story, Junkyard Dog is sweating bullets, going, "Okay, do I save Michael Hayes's life, or do I maintain kayfabe?" Oh, could you could you imagine the fucking bubble that that would have put uh, Cowboy Bill Watts on? All right, so you broke kayfabe. To save Michael Hayes' life. What the fuck did I tell you about breaking kayfabe? <laughs> right, yeah. That's going to be $5,000, dipshit. Well, you know, Watts, Watts was not the biggest fan of Michael anyway. He loved Gordy, but he wasn't necessarily the biggest fan of Michael. So I, I think that he would have would have been uh, madder at dog yeah. for breaking kayfabe than he would have <laughs> a fan for shooting Hayes. But, you know, that's not the only gun that was pulled. Uh, Duggan had a gun pulled on him by a little lady. In the dressing room in Little Rock, Arkansas, after a match with JYD. And uh, he's like, he had to grab her, uh, physically restrain her, and he's screaming at the top of, of his lungs, she's got a gun, she's got a gun. You know, but the heat that was that was generated by Mid-South was unbelievable. And probably the, the top person that perpetuated the heat uh, nationally does not get the credit. Uh, that we saw him in Mid-South do, and that was Skandar Akbar. Akbar was absolutely, as a kid, you hated him. You hated the guy. But when you go back and look at the body of work and the way he drew heat, because he was always managing people that couldn't speak for themselves. Mm. You know, he was managing Kamala. He was managing one-man gang. He was managing the missing link at different times. He managed Offensika when they were in. Um, managed the Iron Sheet. He was phenomenal on the mic. Mm -hmm. And that's where you mentioned earlier, Jeremy, about Ted DeBusey. Yeah. That's where the name came from. Yes. You know, that was Akbar. <laughs> you know, Akbar was so over the top. And, you know, of course, he portrayed being a wealthy uh, Arab with all these ties, all this endless money. And he had a the West Texas accent. But, uh, you know, he, he was phenomenal. He was absolutely phenomenal. And he helped to start so many of the angles that were used in Mid-South. Akbar had so much heat that after they burned Duggan, uh, which I'll go into a little later if we have time, the Superdome show was coming up. He had to wear bulletproof vest in the Superdome. They had a... Uh, over a dozen death threats on his life called in. And the state police said, you either wear the bulletproof vest or we're scrapping the shut. Uh, that's the kind of heat, kind of emotion he was drawing in Lake Charles. And I, I misquoted in what we, we talked about on the document. Uh, I thought it was Homer, but it was actually Lake Charles. Um, someone threw Drano in his eyes and he thought it was acid. He thought it was over. You know, and they had to wash his eyes out, and for a couple of weeks he had a lot of a lot of severe pain. But the heat that was drawn by the heels in Mid South made Mid South. Um, yeah, that that is one of those things that I just think is kind of a lost art is drawing that much heat, because no matter what nowadays, ever since it's been let out of the bag, we all mm -hmm. just kind of. You know, well, okay, I mean, whatever, you know, and they even go on, 
you know, you get on Twitter and you look at these pro wrestlers and they're under their real names. They're not playing their character, you know, off, you know, when they're, when they're not on TV, they're not them anymore. And we'll, we're going to talk a little bit now about how Bill Watts enforced and maintained kayfabe and also his ability to, uh, make you pay money to him when you fuck something up. So who, who wants to start on, uh, fines and kayfabe and all that in that area? Sean, you go for that. Okay. Well, Watts was a big believer in everything we do should make sense. Nobody should be watching at home thinking, well, why the hell is he doing that? Which me personally, that still sticks with me to this day because nothing will turn me off of a wrestling program quicker than somebody doing something that just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Uh, I mean, once you kind of take me out of that, then I'm done. But, and so, I mean, there's references. People talk about Bill Watts would always talk about the invisible wall. You know, when you got somebody getting worked over, you got a face getting worked over by the heels, he's outnumbered. And other people are coming in to save him. And they're just standing by the ring helplessly as if there's an invisible wall there keeping them from climbing in. <laughs> you know, Watts didn't go for that. Uh, there were certain moves he didn't like. He said, if you're going to rake somebody's back, either come up with skin or don't do it. Yeah, and, he, he fined uh, Dennis Condry for that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so, I mean, just everything had to make sense. Everything had to have a purpose. And, the, like you're talking about with the guys on Twitter. If there was a Twitter in 1982, you would not be seeing Ted DiBiase and Junkyard Dog hanging out at a barbecue together. Yeah. Okay. Now, my dad, who worked in Baton Rouge, swears to – he told me this numerous times growing up because he was the one person in my family who wasn't buying it. <clears throat> like when we would get together for family gatherings, my uncles, grown-ass men would be sitting around talking about the wrestling with us like it was the Super Bowl or <laughs> World Series or something. But my dad was always the one kind of sitting, and I was like, I can't believe y'all buy this. But my dad swears one day he's working in Baton Rouge, and he sees Junkyard Dog and Ted DiBiase eating breakfast together. And my dad wouldn't lie about that, so the only thing I can think of is it must have been before the heel turn. Yes. Yeah. But yeah. what strictly strictly forbade the heels and the faces from showing up together. And as they were traveling through the circuit and where the guys lived in the different towns, he's like, don't even be seen in the same bar together. And there's actually a story that um, I think it was Jim Ross told in an old Shreveport newspaper article that they in Shreveport, when they had the TV tapings, you know, when everybody would come in, they'd spend the night, throw it Alamo Plaza or whatever, and they would actually have a designated bar. Okay, you heels, you guys can go hang out at this club. Faces, you can go ahead and hang out at this club. And for whatever reason, the club that the heels were hanging out starts blowing up. And they're getting all these people in and all the good-looking ladies. It's just now suddenly it's the place to be. And the faces actually went to Watson complained that, hey, we want to be able to go to this place too. And so what Watts did is they set up a rotation and it's like, okay, on this day, this day, and this day, the heels go. On this day and this day, the faces go. And so they kept them separated like that. I mean, yeah, that is the I, extent that they went through to maintain the illusion. Yeah. Tony Anthony and uh, Buddy Landell both told me, you know, they the, the, the 
the heel went to one bar, and it was no, you know, don't break any kayfabe, you know, uh, at any given time. Uh, they had their own heel bar, and the faces went to their own bar. They both told me that several times. So, um, yeah, speaking of fines, uh, Budro got Buddy. fined so much. There were, there, were, there were some checks that he owed White's money. That's what I heard. He was the king of the fines out there, I guess. So, um, speaking of Bud Rowe, I'm just going. I had one more person I wanted to bring up that's going to probably lead into to, to Bud Rowe, but that was um, talking earlier. Uh, Butch Reed, when they brought him in, and I heard territory was so hot that uh, Tony Atlas wouldn't come in, and, um, but I guess Ernie Ladd helped bring him in. And he, he started as a top heel working with JYD. And the, he was questioning the whole black on black thing. I guess it just got over like crazy. Uh, do you recall any of that time? I'm sure you recall. Can you talk me through a little bit of that, how, how everyone responded to that, um, how over it was? And also, I think uh, uh, Reed also worked with uh, uh, a guest buddy, some, if I'm not mistaken, too. Um, well, uh, Buddy was instrumental in, in turning Reed face. Uh, okay, is but, that what it was? Yeah. Reed, uh, when Reed came in, of course, he came in uh, hated immediately because, you know, I'm going to paint a yellow streak down that dog's back, you know, and yeah. it was, and yeah. he actually did. Uh, you know, he had a had a taping where he uh, tried to tar and feather him or, or, or paint a yellow streak. I, I can't remember which it was. It was a yellow streak from what yeah. I've got on my notes here. Yeah, Reed, when he came in, Reed, Reed was built like a Greek god. I mean, this yeah. guy was juiced to the to, to the. When I say juiced, I don't mean. I mean, he was just pumped, really pumped. Yeah. And when he came in, and he was totally against junkyard dog, you know. And they had dog collar matches. They had ghetto street fight matches. And you know, anytime they promoted that, you would see Reed in a pair of blue jeans. With you know a, a bandana uh, around his head and a cut off T-shirt, and, you know junkyard dog, I'm gonna beat you like the mangy dog you are, and you know and dog, you know Reed, I'm gonna get you, and you know it really was a big play. Getting over, I, I think they sold out everywhere they went, yeah, because it was such a phenomenal angle, and you know Reed was was phenomenal in the ring. You know, uh, a lot of times when you put him in a match against a, 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 a you know, a, a white meat baby face, mm-hmm. uh, he was so much bigger, so much stronger that it, it, you know, his talents were unbelievable. He was, Butch Reed himself was worth the price of admission. Yeah. That's wild, man. Yeah, I, I think it was him and Buddy that painted the Yellow Street on JYD. That's, that's, that's the notes I had. Right. And then so now, so Buddy eventually played a part in Reed turning face after that? Yes. Uh, okay. it, it, Sean may can, may can refresh me a little bit more on this, but what I remember was Buddy was kind of pushing Reed a little bit and, you know, trying to give him a watch and, you know, things like that. But you also got to remember, Buddy had been in the territory several years prior as brown-haired, baby-faced Buddy Landale. Then after he had his big run in Puerto Rico, he comes back to Mid-South, and he's blonde-haired and the heel. 
Yeah. And he was instrumental, though, in, in the angle that turned Reed face. And when Reed turned face, at this time, Dog was gone. He was in New York. Uh, and Reed became, uh, you know, one of the major stars along with uh, Duggan, uh, the Rock and Roll Express, and and Reed. You know, they were they were must see. Absolutely, thank you. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, my next question was um, just 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 for my own for the fans too, but I just every arena seems like. Um, they have a, uh, you know, like in Baltimore's little old lady that had an umbrella that was always on TV in the front row. And in Knoxville, we had uh, Beulah. Did you all have, like, uh, I'm sure you had uh, probably hardcore fans sitting in the, the same seat every time they went to that show. They knew which ticket they buy, and they knew, you know, did you all have the little old lady, your little old man in every little arena or town that, known by everyone to be in that seat every week. Just curious. Uh, did you see them on TV or did you see them at the big buildings or or uh, any, any reference to that at all? Sean? Yeah, well, on TV, uh, the first guy you would notice is, I'm, I want to say I've heard his name sometime before, but Cowboy Hat. Yes. <laughs> There's a guy with a cowboy hat that for the first couple of years is always kind of sitting in one corner of the ring. And eventually you notice, well, now he's starting to kind of become the ring attendant. He's the guy picking up the belts and the robes and all that kind of stuff. So he's one of those guys that hung around until they gave him something to do. Uh, yeah. Later on, you got the guy sitting a few rows up opposite the hard camera in the mixer in the Mr. X mask. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I would love to be able to find out who that was and talk to that guy. That would be so awesome. Yes. But yeah. those those are the two guys that stick out to me. I yeah, mean, everybody else kind of cycled in, kind of cycled out. Uh, yeah. After they had the big talent trade in the rock and roll and kind of the younger, nicer looking guys started coming in, you started seeing a lot more girls in the crowd and all that. And every now and again, you do. I mean, there's one – Every now and then you'll watch and there'll be that perfect shot of the little four ladies sitting together ringside, you know, yeah. but it wasn't always the same ones over and over yeah. again. Locally, yeah. I would attend a, a local high school for Mid-South shows, house shows, and I always remember this one lady, and I, she was probably somewhere between 80 and 105, I'm not sure at that time, <laughs> uh, might have weighed 90 pounds soaking wet. She was always sitting on a corner seat on the front row closest to the heel dressing room. And when they came out of that dressing room <laughs> from the time they got it, from their time their, their face was shown till they got in the ring, they finished the match and they went back. She was not in that chair. She was <laughs> screaming at them, bloody murder. You would have thought she was going to strangle them. But, you know, I remember her distinctly. Yeah, little blue-haired lady. Yeah, yeah. They, the in Baltimore they called her umbrella lady, but yeah, the blue-haired ladies. That's probably a better reference for for nationwide, I think. <laughs> it seems like every town has one of those. Uh, you know, shows up at every arena show, sits pretty much in the in the same seat, and you know, I just love that man. That's just the, I just love the business, and that that's such a a big part of it. I thought when you always had that one fan, because you, I just knew around other parts of the country there had to be that fan, you know, and every mm -hmm. every building has one. Um, man, that's good stuff. 
Uh, where are we going to from here, guys? I'm kind of I came in late, and again I apologize for that. What's um, looks like we're heading down to the bottom of our notes here. Um, well, I was there anything I missed out on or any questions, Jeremy? That I left off, or that's just the bottom of my notes as well as what I had. I'm just you know. Well, actually, I I kind of I, I, I about that earlier. But I, I kind of wanted to get into like petrol money and hookers if we could. So. Uh, <laughs> You know, it's it's it, when I'm in the conversation, it's only so long before prostitution comes up, anyways. But um, so as this territory was growing, I mean, obviously it was it was booming at one point. So what was kind of the the start of the downward slope for the UWF slash Mid South? Where where did things start to come apart? Okay, well. Mid-South ends up, you know, of course, it explode, it grows bigger. You know, we Watts takes back over the McGurk half of the territory, Oklahoma and Arkansas. And around that same time, he actually signs the deal with Paul Bosch in Houston. Uh-huh. And so now he's the talent provider for the Houston territory. So, I mean, like I say, business is booming and it's just going nuts for a few years there. But then things start changing. Uh, Junkyard Dog gets taken away in 1984. McMahon's starting to make his push. You got the whole Black Saturday thing going down. Okay. Part of the response that Turner had to McMahon basically lying to him about what kind of program he was going to put on was Turner put other wrestling on. Mm-hmm. And one of the shows he puts on was Mid-South. And at one point, Mid-South was actually the highest rated TV show on cable. On cable. And if you watch the video of it, you can kind of see around that time the production kind of changes a little bit. They go from the blue background with the red lettering that's kind of cheap looking to the bigger set that's got the new logo on it and everything. And uh, Boyd Pierce goes from wearing all the crazy suits to everybody's wearing the same black blazer with the logo on it and all that. And so things are going real well. And as McMahon's push is coming and everybody kind of sees what's happening, Watts had actually made a deal with Ted Turner for Watts to take Mid-South National. Turner was going to be the money, and Watts was going to handle the wrestling end of it. But then, lo and behold, Crockett comes in and says, well, look, how about I just buy the TV slot directly from McMahon? And that saves Turner a lot of trouble, so they go that route. But one of the um, conditions of that was there's not going to be any other wrestling on TBS. So Watts is still kind of in position where he has to expand and try to go national, but now he's got to do it on his own. And so Mid-South becomes the UWF, and that's his attempt at doing it. But he's still pretty much promoting in the same area. He's trying to expand his TV more around the country. He does a few shows here and there in you know, California or wherever, but mostly he's still concentrating on his area. And you got a number of things going on, but the thing Watts always blames is basically the economy tanks mm-hmm. in that part of the country. Mm-hmm. And people just don't have the money to spend on wrestling shows anymore. And, you know, you can argue that, and I think that's probably an oversimplifi- oversimplification of it. But that's the thing that people generally blame the downfall of the territory on is just the money not being there. And one of the signals that Watts knew that he was really in trouble is they've got a big show in New Orleans coming up because, you know, one of the Superdome shows, I suppose, 
and he's trying to get some escorts lined up for some VIPs in attendance, and he can't find any. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Watts is going, man, if it's gotten to the point where I can't find a whore in New Orleans, this thing's <laughs> about to come to an end. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, that's – um. I was actually shocked because you, you put that in one of the notes as we were headed up to the show. I, I was actually shocked that it got to the point where you could not find somebody turning tricks in New Orleans of all fucking places. And we're talking about the, the first profession that any human being ever got into. And there was nobody doing it in the uh, most corrupt city on the whole planet. That is crazy to me. Um, of course, we, we do have to mention there was another UWF where the leader of said company uh, died covered in baby oil, cocaine, and hookers. And um, what a way to go. What a way to go. Herb Abrams, my hat off to you, sir. Hey, like Bobby Blair said, he left this world doing what he loved. Uh-huh. That's right, man. That's right. All right. Yeah. So, guys, what is what we, what would you say? Is the um what was the culmination of the UWF falling apart? What did that do to wrestling as a whole? Adam, I think it sent territory wrestling into a tailspin. Um, if you look back at the way Mid South was uh, televised, produced, given to the uh, to the masses, it was everything, as Sean said earlier, everything meant something. When you came in, you had two, uh, you had your commentator and your color guy. They were both introduced. You went to the ring, your ring announcer was introduced. Your mm-hmm. talent was introduced. Your referee was introduced. Everybody, everything meant something. You knew who the referees were. You knew who the ring announcers were. You knew everything, and that kind of started to, you know, it had, it did have a regional feel. Don't get me wrong. Mid-South had a very regional feel. Once they went to UWF, bigger crowds, you know, not the studio setting, it had a completely different feel. And for me, that's when Territory Wrestling started to, to take a tailspin, at least in this part of the country. Yeah, and I would I would agree with that. I mean, to be completely frank, um, the beginning of the end of my passion for watching pro wrestling was when they moved the TV tapings out of the Irish McNeil Boys Club. Exactly. It just it wasn't anything wrong with the product. It was still very engaging, but it's just mm-hmm. at that point, you know, you're such a creature of habit. It's like I've been watching this every week since well as long as I can remember, mm-hmm. and now it's different. And it's still good, yeah. but it's different, and it just doesn't quite feel the same. And as far as overall what it did to wrestling, when UWF went out, uh, pro wrestling basically ceased to exist to me. Um, my parents to this day do not have a pay TV service, so I wasn't watching any of the NWA on TBS. Right. And, I mean, I you would still – I mean, of course, I'd still look at the magazines and know what was going on here and there. But as far as actually watching it, I mean – I very briefly tuned in to WWF in 1998 
I was just, I was kind of between jobs, staying with another friends. And I'm just flipping channels like, ah, oh, here's some pro wrestling. Let me watch this. Oh my God. I watched about 20 minutes of good <laughs> That's handling. not wrestling. What yeah. is this shit? And, yeah. I mean, that was the same feeling I had when WWF first got syndicated on our local TV. I'm like, oh, wrestling. Let me watch this. And what the heck is this cartoon crap? Yeah. But later that same year, I was working, some, working a night job. And. I come home on Monday, and the only thing on TV that's catching my attention is the replay of Nitro. And I kind of get suckered back into that and start watching wrestling again. Uh, I mean, in between that, uh, it's kind of interesting. I mean, like I said, when UWF went out of business in 87, it's like I didn't even really think about pro wrestling for years. But in the mid-90s, I started working – for a uh, orthopedic clinic in Jackson. And one of the doctors used to actually treat the Mid-South guys. And you walk through the halls and there'd be pictures hanging on the wall of Ted DiBiase. And uh, there was actually an implant they had replicated that they had put in Andre the Giant's knee because it was like four times the size of normal persons. And so they had a copy of it made and put it on a plaque to kind of show that off. And that That got me thinking about it again. That was Gene Barrett, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Okay. Yes, it was. And um, so that kind of like, yeah, you know, I remember watching all that stuff. That was really cool. And that's about the same time as the dawn of the Internet. So this now I can like, ah, let me see what I can find if I type in Mid-South Wrestling. And then you can find a couple of little fan sites and pages and things. And, you know, that kind of got me revved up about it again. And then from there, I found the uh, VHS tapes on eBay and there's no looking back after that. Yeah. You know, for me, um, I hadn't watched wrestling besides here and there. Like my kids with my brother would get pay-per-views and they'd watch them like at my place sometimes. And I remember just like occasionally I'd pay attention for a minute and just be like, boy, that's some racist, horrible shit you guys are watching. You know, I hadn't watched wrestling for <laughs> 20 years almost before Bobby and I started this show. And I kind of forgot about this time period where that I really loved. It was like if if you had, you know, TV on an antenna set still and you your UHF dial Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you could find 10 hours of pro wrestling from all over the country that you had never seen before. And I always found that exciting. You know, when you come across something new so for me, that's a big part of what I miss. It sounds to me like you guys missed when it was like your area, guys. Right. Right. And, and you know, I, like Sean, I didn't watch wrestling for years. I was actually teaching school, and my students started talking about it. And they were talking about Stone Cold Steve Austin. I had no idea who Stone Cold Steve Austin was. You know, I guess I'd been under a rock. And it brought back a lot of memories because when I was in school, we talked about Junkyard Dog, Skandar Akbar, different ones. So I wanted to see who Stone Cold Steve Austin was. So I started tuning into Monday Night Raw. Mm-hmm. You know, so I would have something to kind of engage some of the, the students with at school. And, um, you know, the product was very different. Uh, the way it was presented was very different. The way that Stone Cold came across was very different. I couldn't have pictured him working for Bill Watts. No. No. So, but yeah, that that's kind of what got me back into it for a brief period of time. And then for years, the only thing I did where wrestling was involved was watch shoot, shoot interviews. 
And, you know, those were, were great to watch. And then I actually met Sean through Twitter. And when I started listening to podcasts, it really got me back into. And in the last few years, I went to several live events that I probably wouldn't, wouldn't have even known about if it hadn't have been for some of the people I've met through Twitter. Adam, what was it about my Twitter account that caught your eye? Oh, yeah. Uh, in the uh, background photo on Twitter, it had all the flags, the state flags that were shown in the backdrop at the Irish McNeil's Boys Clubs from the Mid-South TV tapings. When I saw that, I knew this guy's a wrestling fan, not to mention <laughs> he was a Southern Miss alumni, which I'm a Southern Miss alumni. So we kind of had that connection there. We, you know, got to, to talk some through Twitter and we met a couple of times, went to a couple of live events together. Man, that's awesome. Yeah, that's I actually, awesome. my, my first job out of college was basically where Adam lives. Yeah. I mean, we were neighbors for years and <laughs> didn't, didn't even know it. <laughs> didn't even know it. That's lived funny. about six miles apart. Um, all right, guys, so I imagine we're going to start winding down here. So the one question I have remaining about uh, Mid-South and UWF is why was Hot Stuff Incorporated the greatest faction in all of wrestling history? <laughs> I'll defer that <laughs> right, on, right on over to Sean. I think I'm just going to go ahead and invoke the free bird rule. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Bobby, you got anything to, to follow up with here? Uh, no, just, man, I'm, I'm thrilled that we got to have this conversation. I'm, I'm sorry I missed the first part of it, man, but uh, thanks for being on the program. And it's just, it's been an educational and uh, a few good laughs and uh, just enjoyed it, man. Thank you guys for taking the time of your day to be with us. Um, I appreciate that, and Professor putting the thing together for us. So, thank you. It's it's absolutely been a pleasure, and you know, uh, honestly, I didn't get a, but about halfway through my notes. So. Yeah. <laughs> Time goes fast, you know. It does. Yeah. It does. Um, I just want to say also, you know, thanks for having us on. I yes. mean, that's it's very nice to actually talk to both of you in real time. Finally, that's it's been yes, a lot of fun. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, a big fan of the show. I have Great. have really enjoyed it. Uh, you know, the the first edition of Bell to Bell with Bobby Blaze was a lot of fun. Uh, when you guys come back uh, after a short hiatus, uh, let's just say it's been a more enjoyable ride. Uh, not that there was anything wrong with the first, but you guys have really really given me something to look forward to in the podcast world each and every week. Well, thank you, thank you very much. Um, that means a lot, it really does. Do you all want to give out your Twitter accounts while you while you're on here? If you like to plug anything uh, while you're on here, at all? Go ahead, Sean. Uh, yeah, uh, I am on Twitter at Sparks Third Coast. Uh, Sparks the R D C O A S T. Uh, uh, you can also find me occasionally uh, hanging out on the Booking the Territory JV Goon Squad. Uh, do a live stream with Mike Mills on there on occasion uh, when every when the stars align. Adam? I am also on Twitter at A Price INS at AOL.com or A Price INS on Twitter. Um, pretty much just uh, my Twitter existence basically is about uh, reviewing a couple of podcasts that I enjoy, which of course 
Bell to Bell with Bobby Blaze is is one of the main ones that I uh, follow and uh, try to interact with what what I think of the podcast of each each week that goes along. All right. Thank you, Thank you very yeah. much. Thank you, uh, guys. Jeremy, you can be found at Twitter at, uh, what, The Geekish Cast? Yes, sir. Um, I could I could be found on Twitter at BobbyBlaze744. Jeremy runs a joint account, and that is at bell to bell blaze um, on Twitter as well. And I have to say, it's been really nice talking to you guys in real time, as you said as well. Um, I know we're going to wrap things up here. I'll just uh, do my what I normally hey, do. Guys, take care hey, of yourself out there. Hey, Bobby, be safe. Look, look yes. at book. You hadn't plugged the book. Oh, yeah. I know. You want me to plug my book. See, That's I had, right. All right. I had that on the note somewhere. But, yeah, um, as we know, our fans are educated, and they like to read. And uh, I have a couple books, and I'll plug them. Appreciate that for putting, <laughs> getting that in my mind. I've just enjoyed your stories so much. Um, so, yeah, uh, be, uh, Pin Me, Pay Me, Have Boostable Travel. That's my first book. Um, the professor set up a link. Just go to tinyurl.com slash Blaze Book One. Uh, my second book, The Educational Wrestler, I kicked out on two. You can get that at tinyurl.com slash Blaze Book Two. So get either one of those books um, on Twitter, easy to download, or shit on uh, Amazon. Very easy to download. Uh, but uh, if you get a print edition, this program does get a small uh, percentage of it, and it helps uh, uh, us sponsor our, our podcast. Again, that's uh, Bell. Um, uh, pin me, pay me, have boostable travel at tinyurl.com, blaze book one, or um, I kicked out on two, the educational wrestler, uh, tinyurl.com, blaze book two. Thank you very much for helping me get that plug in there, guys. All right. Anybody you want to wrap up with anything, or are we all set here? We're all I think set. we're good. All right. How well, about let's just win today? That's one of my favorite tweets out there, guys. Thank you. I think that's, that's I appreciate one, uh, that, Bobby. Yeah, that's great, man. I, I we actually about three, two or three podcasts ago, we had the tweet tweet of the week, and I had that listed, and we got so involved in, it, we never came back. We 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 jumped over it from another segue, but uh, I like to bring it up from time to time. That's a great tweet, man. Just win today, so yes. thank you. <clears throat> All right, everybody. With that being said, thank you for tuning in this week. We always appreciate it. Uh, go buy one of Bobby's books if you haven't yet. What the fuck is wrong with you? For the late Tex, yeah, the late Tex Johnson, the on-time Professor Jeremy Vilmer, and the came in just a little bit behind Bobby Blaze, and the rest. Bye, bye, everybody.